It's another Monday morning, and it's another Monday where we can talk about a Browns victory. This has not happened much. They are 4-1 and one for the first time since 1994. I've lived here nearly 25 years, and they've never been 4-1 and one during my time in Cleveland. Kind of staggering. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with my colleagues Chris Ranowski and Jane Cahoon. Laura Johnston will be back tomorrow. That was a pretty pretty surprising win yesterday, huh? Yeah, good for them. It's 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 nice to be a Browns fan finally. Um, you know, not to bandwagon, but you know, it's <laughs> it's it's actually good to have something to to cheer on here in, in Cleveland. Well, I still thought they were going to blow it near the end, <laughs> <laughs> but they're not blowing it. That's the thing. Right. They're they're managing to hold it together. They're doing some things. And, and look, this town needed a lift. It just wasn't getting much of one, and so having. The Browns doing well is the lift that it needs. Hope it continues next week. They go into Pittsburgh. Wouldn't it be nice if they they kick the butt of that team? Okay, let's start. Who got the endorsement for president from the editorial board of Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer and why? I can't really ask Jane or Chris this question because <laughs> they're not on the editorial board. I am. And so the editorial board generally does not like to in- do things that will not move a needle somehow but felt that this is a brand thing. If you don't stand up at this moment in America, you will regret it down the road. History will not be kind, I think, to people who look back and and see people standing on the sidelines. So the endorsement was for Joe Biden, and the reason was because Donald Trump is the worst president that we've ever seen. He has no integrity, he has no honesty, he has no compassion, and he has no leadership as proven by his complete failure to lead on the coronavirus. So pretty strongly worded. We don't expect to change anybody's mind, but we thought people do look to institutions like ours to take a stand. And and so we did. Did it surprise either of you? Uh, no. <laughs> no, it didn't surprise me. I'm, I'm kind of curious uh, what kind of reaction you got, though. You know, it was interesting. There's a there's a group of people that's maybe 15 strong that writes me almost every week. And they're in a chat room somewhere where they get a diagram for how they should do it because the emails are all fairly lengthy, structured exactly the same way and make the same points. So I heard from them and, and you know, they're completely lacking in civility and say all sorts of horrible things. But other than that, I didn't really hear a lot. I, you know, I got a couple of nice notes and a couple of people saying I'm, I'm going to cancel, although I don't think they did. The thing that throws me is the rage. The, 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 there are people that wrote to me that you're destroying America. You don't see it. But, and when you see it, it'll be too late. And I can't wait till the mainstream media is dead. That, that, you know, they throw the 47 years of Biden not doing anything, which is just complete crap, right? I mean, I actually am in the rare position where at the very beginning of my career, when I was, I think, 22 or 21, I covered uh, some things with Joe Biden in Delaware when he had jet black hair and was a much younger man. I mean, in 47 years, he's done a lot. It's just... It's just stupid, phony talking points that they they throw. And that's what I got. I didn't get anybody debating me or I didn't get many people debating us on the points of the editorial. It was just uh, he's a socialist. He's going to destroy the country and you're you're wrong. And I mean, just all of the rage. I mean, the, the, the there's so they're so lacking in civility 
it makes my job easier because I don't respond to emails that aren't civil. So, <laughs> so I didn't have to. Can you, um, I mean, can you give a little insight into, you know, this wasn't a unanimous agreement among the members of the editorial board. There was serious debate about this. And I, and, and that's what I think people don't, I, I don't think people have a full understanding of how much discussion and thought go, actually goes into making this decision. Can you give a little insight into that? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it was pretty overwhelming. I mean, you know, I mean, the the the, the debate about it was: is this an endorsement that is pro Joe Biden, or is it more an endorsement that says Donald Trump's got to go? It's a little bit of both, but you know, nobody thinks Joe Biden is the greatest candidate in the world. He's just compared to Donald Trump. The board felt light years better because he will lead with compassion. The, the The way the discussion went is what are the key points to make without writing a Bible length treatise? And and so the points that were made are about the coronavirus, about white supremacy, uh, the, you know, and, we, and, and it, it made a nod that the economy largely did roar during Trump's administration and left some people behind. There There was a debate about whether to include foreign policy, but for everybody that wants to hold that up as a plus for him, there are many people that can hold up many minuses. I mean, there are people that champion what he did with the Obama-Iran agreement, but there are a whole lot of people think he, he did a bad thing there. You know, the, he got out of the Paris Accords. He's terrible for the environment and that kind of thing. So it was a it was a point-by-point discussion in which there was largely unanimity. There were some some voices outside. I mean, Ted Dieden is a member of the board, and he wrote a column a week ago saying that he he votes for Trump. And it it was interesting to discuss with Ted because he voted against Trump last time for the very reasons the board articulated this time that he has to go. It's that he is completely lacking in integrity. He lies with almost every word that comes out of his mouth. It's been proven over and over. So I was surprised that Ted has swung to the other side because he he sees that that phantom thing that if the Democrats get in control for four years, the country will get destroyed which is they're just silly, right? I mean, there's nothing that, that says the Democrats will destroy the country, but there's this panic. And Jane, if I had to pick the one thing that really kind of came through in the notes I got, it was almost a despair. Like the people knew that this is coming to an end, that they, they recognize there's a very good chance that Donald Trump is going to lose and they're bitter about it. And I think that led to some of the... Mm the viciousness and and what I get. I, I'm still surprised that you would sit down on a Sunday morning and, and write such venom. I mean, it would make me feel bad to write that kind of venom. And, you know, and it doesn't really bother me to get it. I've got a very thick skin and it, you know, it just bounces off my back. I did not go on the Facebook and look at the hundreds of comments there. I'm sure it would be uplifting. and (laughs) helpful. Anyway, we took a stand. We hope people in the community are, or at least understand that by taking a stand, we risk losing subscribers, but we felt it was important to do so, uh, even though we don't think anybody's going to change their mind on who they're voting for. So there you go. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why are state legislators dawdling on repealing the very corrupt HB6, which was created through a bribery scheme funded by First Energy's $60 million to bail out nuclear plants that the utility owned at the time? Jane Cahoon, we did a nice piece. Uh, I think it published Friday and Sunday, maybe in the paper. I'm not sure what they published about why they're dragging their feet on repealing this terrible bill that everybody wants gone. What did Jeremy Pelzer find out? 
Yeah, um, I think it did run Saturday in the paper, I'm pretty sure. But anyway, the main reason is that they they just can't come to a consensus. Now, I'm going to give you other reasons here, but uh, you're going to you throw the flag, as you say, on all of them because <laughs> you, you, don't, you don't buy any of this uh, noble reasons for dawdling here. But some of them want a, a straight repeal of HB6. Others think it should be replaced. And then some of them actually think nothing at all should should be done to this. And the Senate is really leaving this up to the House to decide because that's where this bill originated, you know, with Larry Householder pushing it through as House Speaker. And so now we have Bob Cup, the newly elected House Speaker, who is known to be very deliberative. And he's not really talking to us. He refers, you know, us to a statement from Jim Hoops, the guy he named to this committee to study this. But and then we've got people like State Representative Dave Leland, who is a Columbus Democrat, who's who's very critical of this. And he says, you know, that the Republicans think if they just stonewall it for long enough, people are going to forget about it. Uh, and then he says, you got people who want to do something, but they're not sure what they want to do. And then you got a speaker who doesn't know what he wants to do. Um, so it's a multifaceted Problem. I, I have heard repeatedly the Republicans believe this will just go away. They're wrong. We're not going to let it go away. The environmentalists are not going to let it go away. And it's kind of despicable that that's what they're hoping is that we're so jaded by scandal in government anymore that they think that we, it would just fall off our backs. Um, so, you know, it's a cynical way of, of dealing with it. I did think the the one thing that had credibility is they don't want to raise people's electric rates and this bill even though it takes our money and gives it to first energy they reduced other costs by getting rid of green energy requirements that reduced our electric bills so the one proposal in there that i thought okay do that was the one that basically took away everything that gave any money to first energy the decoupling you know the nuclear plant mm-hmm. thing which no longer really benefits them because they dish that off to avoid scrutiny uh, and then leave the rates as they are and they can come back and debate green energy later you know okay do that if you if you're worried about raising electric rates leave that part alone but take away the money from First Energy, which spent $60 million trying to get a huge cash infusion off of the residents of Ohio. It's not in the public interest. And and it starts. They start getting our money in January. Right. Um, and they're not even meeting again on this until after the election. So that puts them in this time bind, you know, where they they would have to pass something on an emergency to get those um to stop those subsidies from kicking in. <laughs> and they have such a good record of doing good work oh, for the public yes. in During the lame duck, yeah. <laughs> I mean, these guys in, have done so many dastardly deeds that they hide in the lame duck session. It often takes months for us to figure out all of the bad things that they put in there. Although I think it's going to be hard to hide the first energy thing. Anyway, it's a good piece by by Jeremy. I, uh, I don't know why the, that that solution leaving the rates where they are while taking the rest. I don't know why the, the, the some of the people we talked to seem to think that might be hard to get through. That seems like it should be easy to get through unless there's backdoor things going on still where they're trying to keep the money going to first energy, which would be bad. You're listening to this week in the CLE. What did we learn from the latest Baldwin-Wallace Great Lakes poll about the presidential race, how people want voting reformed and more? 
Jane and Chris, there's a lot to unpack with this poll. We love the Baldwin Wallace Great Lakes poll because they ask so many provocative questions. There were a lot in this version. Let's start, Jane, with the presidential race because that's where we always start on these polls. <laughs> well, it's still essentially a tie in Ohio, according to this poll, although this time President Trump has a slight advantage over Joe Biden. It's less than two percentage points. It's 47 to 454 with only about 5% undecided. Now, Biden had a slight edge in the last poll from September. But in this poll, you know, we they do do these four Great Lakes states, including Ohio. So in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, Biden led there from anywhere from like five to seven percentage points. And as we know, these are three other crucial Midwestern states. In general, it was interesting. You know, Trump seems to find a little more support on everything in Ohio than in the other three states. However, you know, he did one win Ohio by eight points the last time. So these figures don't necessarily bode well for him because it's it's so close. Um, and more Republicans and independents are undecided than Democrats. So that might not be a good sign either. One weird kind of thing on gender, in the other three states, women, as we've seen in other polls, went for Biden, you know, by anywhere from like 13 to 15 points. But in Ohio, women actually went for Trump by like five points. So that one's kind of hard to explain. We saw that in another poll. It, it just seems kind of like an outlier. But, but you know, the other thing that plays into this is how how passionate are people about the candidates and voting? You know, you, you seem to see a fervor this time with Democrats really wanting Trump gone, that they're petrified of what happens with the country and his authoritarian leanings if he's in there for four more years. You know, so they're willing to risk coronavirus to, to get their ballots in. I, I don't know that that passion is as strong with all the Trump voters. And we won't know. We'll, we'll know on November 3rd and in the ensuing days. But that turnout is the all-encompassing indicator that no one can really predict. These are likely voters. They said they were likely voters. But, but if they haven't cast their ballot by November 3rd, are they going to go to the polls and risk being in line and, you know, getting whatever whatever conflict that might be there that they might believe is there? So it'll be interesting to see. The voting was the was the most interesting part of this poll to me. They asked, I don't know, probably nine questions about how people would probably seek to reform voting. And there were some big ones in there, not least of which is people want Election Day to be a national holiday. What else did we see, Chris? Right. What we found out, in which I was honestly, I was a little surprised to see that there's a, a very strong majority of people who support support um, a, vo a voter photo ID requirement that has been opposed by most voting rights groups. Andrew Trubias wrote uh, on a story that came out yesterday that 83% of Ohio in support requiring voters to show a government or photo ID at, at the polls in order to cast a ballot. But um, some other stuff that we found out is that 72% uh, said that they would support maintaining voter rolls to remove uh, inaccurate and duplicate registrations and strong majorities also support the expansion of ballot drop boxes, make, making election day a holiday and universally mailing absentee ballot applications um, with the slim majority also favoring universal ballot application mailing. So 
the only sort of voter liberalization issue that did not get a majority of support is automatic voter registration with 48 supporting and 42% opposed. And, and surprisingly, uh, the poll found that Democrats are more likely to favor more permissive voting laws while Republican voters are less likely. You know, the photo ID is is an interesting one because it seems like people regularly feel that's a common sense thing. I need a photo mm. ID to buy liquor. I need a photo ID to, to do, you know, get on an airplane. I need a photo ID to do so many other things. So what's the big deal if you require it? And, and the voter advocates say that people living in poverty have a much harder time getting the government photo ID, even the state ID card, um, that it that it's more challenging and that this would reduce voting. But you can see people in general are just like, hey, you got to use a photo ID for everything anymore. So what's the big deal? I was impressed at the number of people that that thought that the the ballot application should go out automatically to everybody and that that wasn't there a favorability for registering and voting on the same day? Wasn't that a positive, too? Jane. Yeah, yeah, the, uh, I believe that one got a, got a majority as well. I'm I'm pretty sure. Which is the Republicans are dead set against that because they they <laughs> yeah that, that there was a partisan vote. breakdown I believe with Republicans not not favoring that. But, but I but I was good to see you because you, you know the whole goal is let's make voting easier. It's not what our current Secretary of State is doing. Frank LaRose is making it as hard as he can possibly do. But but people in general in this poll seem to favor mostly making it easier. So that was that was an interesting. Uh, I think that the takeaway from this is that people do believe in expanded access to voting and, and that people it should be easy to vote. But they also are concerned about security and they want to make sure that the vote is secure. So what else did we see in this poll that was interesting? Oh, so much. Well, uh, I thought one really interesting thing is that more than half of the people surveyed, like ranging from 54 to 58 percent in the states, think that Trump won't concede if the results are certified showing that he lost the election. Only like 23 to 26 percent over the four states think he would concede, whereas a majority thought that Biden would concede if he loses. But this was another area where we really had a sharp partisan divide. In Ohio, for example, about 45 percent of Republicans thought Trump would would actually concede compared to 31 percent who said he he wouldn't. Whereas on the Democratic side, a whopping 78 percent of Democrats felt he would not concede compared to only seven percent who thought he would. So that's it's, one thing. It's just amazing to me. We've reached a point in this country where people are that worried about the president yeah. refusing to bow to the will of voters. And that would have been unthinkable, you know, 10 years ago even. And yeah. and here we have people believing that will happen, even though Republicans across the land keep telling their constituents, that's not going to happen. Mike DeWine, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. So what <laughs> we'll else? What else uh, yeah. So Ohio voters are pretty split on Trump's job approval He's got like 49.1 approving and 49.6 disapproving. So that's pretty much even. But in the other three states, he had much higher disapproval, ranging from like a net disapproval of about 5% to as high as almost 10% in 
Wisconsin. But when you get down to specific issues, you see some other interesting things. They generally grade him fairly well on the economy in all four states, but they really grade him poorly on the coronavirus, which probably isn't much of a surprise. There were there were higher rates of disapproval for this with with the net disapprovals ranging from about 8% to as high as about 18% on that on that issue. Yeah, that's not a surprise because that he has objectively done a terrible job. I mean, there is no measure of how he's dealt with the coronavirus that you can say he's done well, including and up to having it himself because we can't get a straight answer out of him about his tests. I mean, he held an event over the weekend and you cannot get a straight answer from the government as to whether the president of this nation is tested negative. And even if they told you, would anybody believe it at this point? Because there's been so much dishonesty coming from the White House. How, how much do you do both of you think that that like how much of this election is a referendum on the coronavirus? Like, is it Mostly. I mean, do you guys feel that? Because that's how I feel. I feel like that this thing can't go away. They've tried to downplay it as no big deal. And I think the majority of people, as this poll actually reflects, that most people think it's still a problem. <laughs> I, I think I think there are a lot of people for whom the coronavirus might be the tipping point that that we're getting fed up. I, I, I also believe that Americans largely are civil people and the incivility, the bitterness, the ridiculous statements, the the way people are described by the current president. I think most people want to get beyond this. We're we're not, you know, generally we're not all getting red faced screaming at each other the way the country is now portrayed. I think that has something to do with it. I also I think when you say the coronavirus, I think part of it is the dishonesty. You know, he knew about it in January. He lied for a month. I mean, admits he lied. You know, you know, he's been caught in so many lies, thousands and thousands of lies. And yet he still looks at the camera and says, I tell the truth. But he admits that he lied to America about this because, you know, he didn't want them to know how dangerous it was. I, I don't think people have a tolerance for that. We're in bad shape. Our country has done worse than almost every country on Earth. I saw a great line last week. There are 14 countries that have fewer cases than the White House has. Oh, my goodness. I think that, you know, that's the reason why this issue is front and center, because he contracted the virus. If that hadn't happened, maybe they would have been more successful in pushing other issues. But this this will not go away. No, and I and and we're coming right up on it now. We're three weeks away. Anything else? Any last uh, minute other things in that? Uh, poll? Just a couple you? things. You know, people, and not surprisingly, after that chaotic debate, uh, people thought Biden won that debate, and a lot of people seem to be engaged with that debate. Believe it or not, and uh, there's a pretty even split on whether they should fill that Supreme Court seat. And um, you'll have to stay tuned for other issues because we're rolling out a bunch more stories on this uh, today and tomorrow. Another fantastic job by Baldwin Wallace. Love their uh, love their their polls. Love what we get from them. So check it all out on Cleveland.com. It's this week in the CLE. With the battle seemingly over or close to over, were voters the losers in Ohio's Secretary of State Frank LaRose's ceaseless effort to limit ballot drop-off boxes? Chris Ranowski, this broke late Friday, the the final, what I believe probably is the final decision, unless it goes to the U.S. Supreme Court. What what ended up happening? 
So the federal appeals court has agreed to reinstate Ohio's limit on ballot uh, drop boxes, at least temporarily, while it considers whether to make more a more permanent ruling on the case. U.S. Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals Judges Robert Griffin and Amal uh, Thapar, in an order uh, Friday night, sharply criticized Cleveland U.S. District Judge Polster's decision, which struck down the drop box limit as unconstitutional after early voting had already begun. The judges said that Secretary of State Frank LaRose's decision to limit drop boxes used to store the absentee ballots to one per county was reasonable and sided with LaRose's arguments that making a change during the election would pose a security risk. So so basically right now everything is just kind of on pause while they consider it, but there's no there's no guarantee that uh, they're they're going to make a decision or even have the full body of the appeals court be able to hear this before the election. Yeah, at this point, is it really too late? Is it, you know, we pretty much ended. It'll be interesting to see. I, I mean, I thought LaRose made a very uh, studious decision. I mean, you can't argue there's fairness between Cuyahoga and other counties. We have way too many people. Uh, so we're going to have traffic jams. It's going to be a problem. And, and we'll have to urge people to get their ballots in early to avoid paralyzing traffic in downtown Cleveland. It was disappointing to see the appellate court voting mm-hmm. that way. And it's it's disappointing to see. I mean, in the last segment, we were talking about how a majority of, of people in this state do want the ability to have multiple places to drop off their, their ballots. And, you know, LaRose can kind of say like, look, I'm hamstrung by the laws. The legis- this isn't the will of the legislature or, you know, it's there's security risk or there's time. There's, there's plenty of time. And, and, and he had plenty of time. And I think, you know, running out the clock, like this was was kind of a predictable end end to this. And, and look, yeah. he was on the record saying, "If I get the legal ability to do it, I'll do it." He got the legal ability to do it. He fought it. He, he this got the legal him. ability from four courts. May uh, I add, this yeah. is Jenkins, <laughs> right? And you know what's interesting is you you see there there is another case like this in, on the in Texas where it's the, exactly he, identical. Right? He, well, I mean that's a little more. That's a little more overt. Uh, you know, that's they're taking away polling places specifically in cities and leaving multiple in rural communities. It's not as overt in this state. But, you know, I, I think that I think LaRose is, is coming from the same sort of, you know, unprincipled position of it. It's just that his his looks like a little more legitimate and polite because he can you know, he can defer to the courts. This wasn't, he didn't have to take like an overt action to pull access from people. He could just say, the law is the law. What are you going to do? And, 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 and that gives him cover. I don't know. He didn't have to appeal it. I mean, he's gotten the permission he said he wanted. I think this revealed the hypocrisy and, and I, I hope it has a long, a long shadow on his career because he's making it harder for people in democratic areas to vote. It seems like party politics. You're listening to this week in the CLE. We set an all time record for coronavirus cases in a single day in Ohio Friday. What was it and what horrible milestone will we most certainly hit today? Jane Cahoon, it's out of control. We talked about it last week, but the numbers have hit staggering levels again. Yeah, this is really concerning. On on Friday, we had a whopping 1,840 new cases, and that broke the previous record of 1,679 on September 30th. 
And, you know, on the weekend, we usually see the numbers drop off a bit because there's just not as much reporting. But those are pretty high, too. We had over 1,300 on Saturday and just under 1,300 on Sunday. So it's just we could hit two thousand this week. I mean, I mean, we're yeah, we're yeah. really rocking it up. More depressing. What number are we going to hit today? Well, we're going to surpass uh, five thousand deaths, um, undoubtedly, because we're at four thousand nine hundred and ninety nine. So you got to believe we're going to hit that bad milestone today. Five thousand Ohioans dead from a virus that, if we had fought successfully, could have reduced that number. It's really. Uh, sad. I mean, it's 5,000 families that have lost loved ones. It's, it's a, this is a, a tragic, tragic year for, for what's happened. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, Chris has pointed this out. Chris Renaski has pointed this out before. Mike DeWine gets up in his briefings and he bemoans the numbers and pleads with people to wear masks, but he won't do anything to stop it. We're, we're not, he says, I'm not going to take no, any he's steps. he's not going to shut anything down, he yeah. said, you know, after we've opened things back up. So, do we know, I mean, do we have any sense of what the attendance at the Browns game was like yesterday? I mean, do they sell all 12,000 tickets that were available? It looked like it from the blimp view. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they yeah, did. It looked like it. But, you know, they were spaced out. They yeah. weren't close together. The more scary thing was that Cedar Point sold out. Yeah. Um, you know, and you just you hope that their numbers are such that people can distance. And We and were we went over to Lakeside over the weekend just to kind of get out of the city a little bit. And we were driving through the the traffic for Cedar Point. And it's like, oh, all these people are going to the park. This is it you kind of get a pit in your stomach when you realize like ooh that can't be i mean good for cedar point but man that's that's uh, but at least that's outside you yeah know? right now I we're at the point where it's it's getting colder and people are going to be indoors more and i just don't see that getting any better keeping the mask on if they're if they keep their masks on then then maybe they'll be all right okay it's this week in the cle thank you jane thank you chris thanks to everybody for listening to this podcast we will be back on tuesday <laughs>